Welcome to Women Who Move Nations, the public transport podcast, where we interview our industry's top female executives from Australia, New Zealand, and around the world. I'm Michelle Batsis, your host and the Chief Executive Officer of the Public Transport Association, Australia, New Zealand. We're raising the voices of women for everyone who works in public transport and mobility, and particularly for any of our listeners who are early in their transport careers and looking for inspiration. Each of our guests shares her views on the future of public transport and provides insights into their career journeys. Make sure you follow Women Who Move Nations on your favorite podcast platform and rate the show to help more people find us. You can also join our community on LinkedIn by searching Public Transport Association Australia New Zealand. We're also on Twitter at PTAANZ underscore or visit us at www.ptaanz.org. Thanks for listening and I hope you enjoy this episode. This week on Women Who Move Nations, I'm joined by Becky Wood, Managing Director of Transport in Australia and New Zealand for Oricon. Thanks so much for joining us, Becky. Yeah, it's lovely to be here, Michelle. Uh, Really excited to have a conversation with you today. I know we're going to cover a number of topics around diversity in the transport sector from a workforce perspective, but also diversity of thinking in terms of what's going on in transport and mobility. And certainly, you know, having a look to the future as as well around reshaping the the customer proposition um, and what that entails in the post-COVID world. I wanted to start by, I guess, asking you about, you know, your career and, and achievements So could you tell us a bit about your current role at Oricon and what you're focused on, but also how did you end up in in this role at Oricon as the Managing Director of Transport? (laughs) Um, So currently I'm the MD for Transport for Australia and New Zealand, as you've mentioned. Um, So I've got a pretty wide span of focus, which is something I really enjoy. Um, My background is, is mainly rail major projects, but I get to take in a pretty broad range of all of infrastructure and transport these days. So fair amount of roads and rail major projects and doing some really exciting city shaping things like the City Rail Link in Auckland and Sydney Metro in New South Wales, but also kind of working across projects at lots of different stages like uh, RPV in in Melbourne where you get something which is in build versus something in planning Um, and then we get to do a fair amount in things like our user-centric design centers so something I've really enjoyed doing is getting really into the more digital and virtual world of transport as it stands today and trying to bring to life the user experience which is something I've always really enjoyed about uh, public transport as an offering. In terms of how I got into uh, transport uh from the outset i'm actually to my <laughs> minor embarrassment uh, I'm, I'm from a finance background so i'm a chartered accountant by trade uh, and working with a, a bunch of engineers um i'm really delighted that i've landed in in a space that's so tangible because the way i got into transport as a whole was through um acting as an advisor on big transactions big major projects ppps and pfis in the uk but i really quickly um came to understand that it wasn't so much the complications of the finance that really interested me it was more about what these fantastic huge assets were going to bring to the cities and the communities that they were going to serve and how much public transport has potential to really touch people from all walks of life in terms of transforming their experience of the everyday and and kind of getting them where they need to go so it was a bit of a journey uh, via finance and into major projects and then very firmly in transport probably for the last 15 years or so but it's it's really the human factors that brought me in. 
Yeah, that's great. And I love that about transport, right? Because actually many of us who are working in this sector, you know, are really driven by the actual social outcomes, you know, that we see out on the network and in the cities and communities. Yeah, absolutely. I really love that. I've got a young daughter. And one of the great things about some of the recent jobs I've had is the fact that um, I've been very much involved in bringing, say, new ferries to Sydney or new trains into service across different networks internationally. Uh, and sometimes we have a ride on them and she'll, she'll, she'll sort of recognise that's what I've been doing all day. Obviously, there are huge <laughs> teams of people bringing these things to life. Uh, yeah. But I, I don't mind at all when she kind of says, oh, is that one of your trains? <laughs> That's so cool, right? I love that. And kids really love trains. There's something about them, isn't there? They absolutely do. And I think I think maybe it's that spark of enjoyment that I've really kind of kept with me. You know, I've, I've been in the business for quite a long time now, but I still get a real kick out of seeing people relish and enjoy a journey on a piece of kit that I've been part of kind of leading into delivery or kind of work with my project teams to really tackle um, aspects of accessibility or just making the user experience different and better and then seeing people actually remark on it is is brilliant it's really it's really brilliant it brings it to life yeah absolutely you're such a transport person because you just use that term piece of kit which I hear a lot (laughs) particularly from people who've worked in the UK right around you know shiny piece of new kit out on the network so you mentioned I guess this love of rail and I kind of want to explore this with you right because I know that you have referred to yourself um, (laughs) as the mother of rail which the first time (laughs) I heard that I just was like this is the best I love it And particularly as well, right, because, you know, what a way to kind of flip that usual gender paradigm we have, right, around the rail industry. And, um, you know, and I think what's really interesting is that, you know, you have managed to establish yourself as a strong female leader in what is essentially still a male-dominated industry. Yes, there has been lots of progress and, yes, we do see more females rising through the ranks and also at a senior level, but there's no doubt about it. In the rail industry in particular, um, there's still we still don't see the, the diversity and the gender balance that I know we would all like to see. And I wanted to ask you, you know, how have you managed to rise through the ranks in this sector and what do you, what do you think we need to do to bring more women through? <laughs> I, think, I think you're right. I think we're still we're still really um struggling to strike that kind of gender balance as well as bringing in all aspects of being inclusive but i also think there might be something in what we've kind of referred to in terms of that passion you tend to see Uh, in the railways in terms of how enthusiastic people are to achieve really good outcomes for people and that's a great connector so certainly there's been definitely times in my career to date where i've noticed the fact i am very different or i am the only person in the room who looks like I do um, and certainly with the accent I've got sometimes I really stick out in Australia though not as much as you might expect um, but I um, I have found in those moments I mean the, the mother of rail thing came up in a bit of a jokey way when we were having a futures conversation about what what did the future of transport and the future of the railways look like and what was my view and it, it was a kind of jokey reference to Game of Thrones in terms of uh, Uh, kind of being quite powerful and fiery and having to kind of fight through to get your voice heard that might have felt the case in a few moments but actually um, it made me think a bit about the fact that technically I'm probably the granddaughter of the railways my my granddad and my great-granddad worked building brass fittings for for tank locomotives a long time in my past and um, I didn't know that until I came into major projects and my granddad remarked upon it just out of the blue Um, he hadn't talked much about his career um, before the world 
the world war actually um, and when that came to light it was a really interesting thing for me in terms of a way to make connections with people across lots of different um, sectors of, of the transport industry so I happened to be working uh, for a time in Japan um, and was asked to give some commentary and I was I was quite intimidated because I was very much the only woman in the room uh, I was certainly the only woman um, with a senior position on the project uh, and I just chose to speak a little bit about my personal and family history in rail and, and how my kind of passion for seeing rail really serve its community was really what had brought me into it and strangely enough that just instantly created a connection so so some of it I think is the fact that there's a lot of genuinely passionate people who want to see the great outcomes that public transport can provide and may have come from that background themselves which helps to kind of cut through some of the barriers when people first see me and I don't look quite as they expected um, in terms of my, my role and my job title versus who I am. Um, I think the other thing is what has really helped me during the course of my career is I've had some really strong sponsorship. Um, and sometimes that can just take the form of working for um, a couple of bosses I had uh, in the past who are um, proper kind of grandfathers of the railway themselves, but very much saw that I was invested in, in seeing the best outcomes I could and brought me with them to a range of very senior meetings or engaged me in the conversation and took the time and made the effort to do that. I think also just seeing opportunities and being prepared to, frankly, probably take a bit of a roll of the dice in terms of offering me roles, which may have caused some raised eyebrows at that time and supporting me through them. And I'm still in touch with a number of those people. And that, that is another thing I like about the transport industry where you form some great relationships sometimes in really complicated moments in major projects. And if you can find a way to manage that respectfully and courteously, and actually you have that shared investment that this has got to happen in the best way, you come out of it with some great relationships. Yeah, I love that, right? And thank you for being so honest as well, right, around, you know, how some of those opportunities came about, but, you know, the kind of complexity of that as well. Mm. Um, and, I, and I think what's you know, we've had conversations about this before, right? We do see the women coming through, but that idea about sponsorship, I think, is really important, you know, and having that support there and feeling like you're kind of safe to take the opportunity, but also kind of safe to fail and learn as you go. Um, I wanted to ask you, you know, continuing on the diversity kind of topic, I know that you're doing some really great initiatives at Oricon in this space. And I'm wondering, can you talk us through a bit about the kind of programs that you know, you're leading or involved with um, that support women in particular? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, perhaps because of the, the real challenges of the global moment we're in at the moment, I've really been thinking about how quickly we've been able to make the transition as a whole business to working uh, in a socially distant way. So we're obviously very much reliant on technology. We're working from home. But I actually think a lot of the groundwork there and a lot of the foundation stones comes from our YesFlex campaign. Um, so I think we were probably one of the only 35 organisations that we uh, we scored as an inclusive employer in 2019, 2020. And part of that was the fact that we we take a yes flex approach, uh, which is deliberately targeting gender inclusion to a degree. But it's also just a reflection that um, people should be able to work flexibly and they should be able to nominate their own start and end times across the working week. They don't need to give me the reason for that. They can simply work flexibly. I trust them to do that. And because we've been doing that for a while now, we transitioned in response to social distancing and having to work in this different way really effectively and really quickly, which I, I just thought was a great testament to the fact that it's very much become the way we operate. We've actually also been able to reach back into client side organizations and work with uh, other project colleagues 
to kind of help them through it because we've lived that experience and built that trust. So I think that's been a big part of us actually kind of walking the walk a bit on inclusion and saying, well, you, you don't need to give me a reason. Working flexibly should just be part of how we can operate. And that's what technology brings to us. It brings a degree of freedom. Um, the flip side of that is I think we do a fair amount of work, which I'm, I'm pretty engaged with personally in terms of things like the Are You OK uh, campaign, particularly in rail. That's a very well-known um, set of initiatives where we're really thoughtful about mental health and in the space of diversity and inclusion I very much think that thinking about mental well-being has to be part of the way we're operating because it brings a flavour to the conversations that we're having and it brings a mutuality of respect that sometimes people have other things going on in their lives um, you know life is not about work it's about living the whole of yourself and bringing the whole of yourself as far as you can to the workplace and that tends to be the best way to operate so we've certainly become very deliberate in the transport context in Oricon in genuinely asking the question of whether we're okay and that opens I think out a series of conversations to both help you understand a little bit more about the people we work with and therefore be more respectful of some of the commitments they might have, the caring responsibilities, other things that are traditional barriers to people having their full success. Um, but also I think just sets a tone that we're happy to have these conversations and that they become our business norm, which I think is a big part of bringing groups of people together in as an inclusive way as we can. Uh, I, I think it enhances the way we work. I genuinely think it enhances the design work that we do and the engineering solutions we find because you've actually genuinely got people's opinion coming to play across the team. Yeah, and actually you just uh, picked up on a point there and I want to explore that further, right, around having that diversity of opinion and thinking at play and then how that actually, you know, influences those outcomes that you achieve, right? Not just, you know, for the client outcomes, but actually the community outcomes. And I know you're particularly passionate, right, around social equity and the social outcomes that we can achieve through transport, you know, and rail, both on the kind of project side, but then the services that get delivered. So let's actually start with, there's a couple of things I want to talk to you about, because I know you're really passionate about trams. And obviously, you know, <laughs> I'm in Melbourne, we've got the world's largest tram network, 250 k's of track. Um, and I know that you've done some work, I guess, around this concept you call kind of user-centered design and user-centered design tram stops. So can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think part of the advantage of having um, the ability to put things into a digital context is you can sort of play around with designs a lot more sympathetically through the eyes of specific users who have very specific needs. Um, so rather than kind of generalizing who's going to experience the, the tram stops in this particular instance, um, and indeed, uh, I, I love the fact that we're, we're doing it as part of the, the biggest live tram work, work uh, globally, I think the world has plenty of lessons to learn. You've got a summit there next year. Let's make that happen. But in that particular context, that was about making sure that we'd thought about accessibility from lots of different um, perspectives in the way that we were approaching the design and brought that to life through some virtual reality sort of simulations um, with a difference. And I think um, one of the great things there as well is um, the more enhanced the, the digital side of things can be, the more genuine the engagement with what it's actually going to be like to use some of these particularly on street stops or aspects of transport infrastructure. And that needs to be from a broader perspective than simply some of the ways that we used to perhaps think simply about say mobility impairment. So, you know, changing the resolution of the way passenger information systems are delivered, changing the way that perhaps children or young people are going to experience crossing the road, what are they going to look at? Changing the way they're interacting with their phones while they're doing it. 
and there's some there's some real opportunities there in bringing these different personas to life through uh, virtual reality experience to kind of run that simulation and really think about how to optimize both the kind of the look and feel of of the stop but also the safety and security that people feel when they're going to use the network and i think feeling assured that you've been considered and the way that you're engaging with the system feeling very natural really encourages people onto public transport which is as you know something i'm really passionate about yeah absolutely right i mean we've talked about that quite a bit in terms of we need to make sure actually that the customer experience and those kind of you know user-centered qualities are incorporated in the design and the service so that we you know do see um, that mode shift, you know, to ensure the sustainability of our cities. You know, can continuing this, uh, I guess, talking about the accessibility and inclusion aspects, I know that many years ago you worked on the London Paralympics and I've been very keen actually to talk to you about that because we've never really had a conversation, right, around, <laughs> you know, the work that you've done, you know, in the UK, um, but particularly the Paralympics, which I think is really interesting you know, normally when an Olympics comes to town, there's so much work that happens, right, around the coordination of, of that transport network and how you make that happen. And so I'm interested to know, I guess, a bit about that experience with the London Paralympics and, you know, and how you've kind of, I guess, seen those initiatives, you know, kind of create change, um, you know, both in that circumstance, but I guess, you know, that process then of you know, incorporating those benefits into the business cases or, you know, the, you know, when we kind of go up to say, well, we need this, right, you know, from the government or from your funder, you know, how do you show and demonstrate the benefits you get from incorporating those accessible and inclusion aspects in the work yeah. that you're delivering? Uh, absolutely. And I think um, there, there are a number of different aspects of the Paralympics experience, which I just you know, I renewed my enthusiasm and enjoyment of working with really talented designers and engineers. And one of them was, I think, absolutely to your point in, in two ways, it doesn't have to cost the earth if you think about this properly in the design phase of a scheme. So, you know, actually you can remove some of those cost-based arguments that sometimes you experience, you know, very understandably, taxpayers' money is not something that um, anyone invests lightly. Um, but bringing design thinking from the outset to the fore in tackling some of the barriers that would naturally be there for people with all forms of different um, uh, impairment that might affect the way they're using public transport. That was a brilliant experience in the, uh, in the Olympic context. The other thing is the way in which um, a lot of the design was thought about from the Paralympics perspective did not start with the assumptions that are traditionally there. So kind of bringing together a team that was that was willing to simply think outside of the existing assumptions for example why on earth would you sit someone who is perhaps needing to use a wheelchair right at the ground floor of a stadium where they clearly aren't going to have any sort of decent view when if you think about it from the design phase you can easily make sure that they have safe ingress and egress you can easily make sure that they can sit and have a brilliant view and experience the event they've come to be at rather than assuming we need to take it from from something we've seen before so there was a really good rich mix of international experience in a lot of those teams and some designers and engineers who had challenged themselves to make it the most accessible olympics ever um, and and bringing that energy but also bringing that really smart outcome-based design thinking to fore meant a lot of the venue design was just absolutely out of this world and the other aspect i think is the legacy aspect so clearly the london 2012 um olympic and paralympic games had a really strong central um 
tenet around the legacy that people were keen to leave. And there was a great deal of uh, work written up, which I encourage people to have a look at. It's free, it's easy to access. And lots of people I've met subsequently post 2012 have drawn on that thinking to then start to challenge their own paradigm. So that, that aspect of the Olympics and Paralympics 2012, where they were very keen to focus on legacy, having written up the lessons and then making sure they were shared and talked about in design forums to make sure that people pick them up and really use them um, actively across lots of different aspects of infrastructure of the future. So, so legacy was another powerful learning for me, I think, in terms of how much that drives great outcomes and pride from the team. The only other thing I think I like to mention when I reflect on my uh, Paralympics experience was I was very lucky to work with some brilliant people at Transport for London who made sure that myself and my team, who were largely in the kind of technical end of things um, on, on the client side in the government, were actually able to be frontline volunteers as part of the Paralympic Games as well. And part of that was the training that we had um, to help us understand and um, really engage actively with spectators as they join the Games and be a bit mindful that um, sometimes we can see where people might need assistance and we can offer it easily. Other um, forms of people's need for assistance are not immediately visible. But if you're sensitive to it and if you're thinking about it front of mind, you can pick that up and you can engage with it. Uh, and that was another kind of thing I took away from the Paralympics experience in terms of thinking both within what we understand and can immediately see as someone's need and then thinking a bit more broadly about how to just make the experience of the network the best it can possibly be for people who might have all forms of hesitation in using it. Yeah, gee, Becky, I can really hear actually how inspired you were you know from from that project and that experience and you know so many learnings from that actually um i really want to talk to you a bit more right about your uk experience and it's funny right because you know in australia in particular there's actually lots of people who are from the uk or have had uk experience working in transport indeed sometimes it kind of feels like a prerequisite but not completely but you know there's certainly a few <laughs> around the traps right um and, you know, I just thought, you know, if you're kind of comfortable sharing, right, maybe, you know, some insights that you might have around, you know, you, what's going on in the UK versus kind of Australia in terms of maybe some of the strengths and weaknesses or, you know, even opportunities for, you know, Australia to think about um, in terms of, you know, the future of public transport here. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think um, the great advantage that we've got in Australia is that we can see um, other networks around the world who've experienced the sort of population growth we're having in our cities a little bit ahead of us. Um, and we can also take a pretty considered view about which forms of technology we might want to use in our systems to deal with that. From, from my London days, there were a number of um, kind of big pieces um, that I really enjoyed in working in the big projects that I did. So I sat on the Crossrail sponsor board for a fairly lengthy period of time. And at that time, Crossrail was one of the biggest infrastructure projects in Western Europe. Um, clearly, um, it is not without difficulty and challenge to deliver something that complicated. Um, but it was, a, it was a great project to be part of. And one of the things I really took away there was um, there'd been some quite forward thinking work around um, not simply looking at the benefits that the transport specific elements of the scheme could bring to London but the game-changing elements of what stations and changes to route would mean for the communities that they were going to serve and I think that healthy uh, approach to thinking 
way outside the transport sector when you think about what transport can bring and also deliberately reaching across into different industries to think well you know let's make a tech precinct come to being let's think about the place that we're transforming let's think about the two points that we're connecting and how to optimize education health and uh, economic opportunity so that that broader economic thinking i think is really starting to manifest itself and there's lovely opportunities um popping up all over australia and new zealand you know i love i love the the, the involvement that oracon's had in the connected communities work in new zealand we're seeing all sorts of precincts thinking uh coming up in australia where there's that opportunity to think um, as as a transport individual but to think with others from other industries to think wait well, let's let's make this a whole place you know western sydney's a classic example of that the aerotropolis is really exciting in terms of the ambitions for smart outcomes there i think also um, naturally when you've got a more populous set of cities and um, some i'm going to use uh, my lovely tech, techie term here michelle uh, lots of compressed headways and lots of pressure on capacity uh, in rail networks uh, observing implementation of new systems for signaling new systems to help us just move around the system as efficiently as we can has been great experience to then bring to Australia so when I was leading the Thameslink project one of the key outcomes there was making sure we'd introduced a new signaling system um, and in particular automatic operation of the train in a certain segment of the route that was that was hugely groundbreaking so I commend the project team because they've they've achieved it um, on the main line in the UK for the first time but the important thing there was you have the opportunity to bring in systems thinking and to really try and integrate that in what you're trying to do to what we would term, I guess, sweat the asset, get as much capacity as you possibly can in the most efficient possible way to move people around to where they want to be. Now, when I hear myself make that statement in the current global moment we've got, it's really caused me to reflect that we can build on that, I hope, in that we know we've got brilliant technology and systems that can help our fixed infrastructure and our rolling stock move at a different pace and respond better and really optimize capacity i think the next evolution of that and perhaps the opportunity for us in australia is then thinking how do we make that work with real-time data when i look at the way the networks are being impacted in terms of natural hesitancy about using public transport at the current moment and how we can make them safe and make sure people feel confident there's also that question in my mind about how you move um, with the digital pace that we've got now in the industry to ensuring your systems are drawing real-time data and actually responding to what passengers need to do, um, especially because I think we're going to see some quite different movements. Um, so, so using that real-time data is, is something I think the industry is starting to do and you see pockets of success there, but there's an opportunity for us in Australia to do that too, I think. Yeah, I think, Becky, that you've really nailed one of the major opportunities, right, that we can see coming out. How do you unlock that real-time data to then see the improvements in the efficiencies and services that get delivered. And I wanted to ask you, because you do have this global view, right, of where you sit and, and the work that you get to be a part of, um, what are you seeing overseas that you think is really cutting edge and leading the way in public transport? I think there's a couple of things there. And I mean, it's it's such a privilege to be able to kind of share lessons and look across. I love the collaboration in our industry, actually, because people will... Um, respond when you reach out. Um, certainly I've got uh, UK colleagues who I've been following with some interest in relation to where we think electric vehicles are going to go, where we think the kind of general decarbonisation ambition that we 
probably collectively have these days across transport um, could take us. And, you know, hydrogen fuel cells, again, very interesting space to be watching. And there's plenty of case studies there in terms of what's gone well and perhaps lessons we could learn to make it go better here in Australia, um, but also in New Zealand. I think... Um, some of the planning aspects of that as well so watching the experience of electric vehicles really starting to take off and a little bit of the autonomous stuff but reflecting on how we then plan some of those cityscapes of the future and and things like western sydney and the precincts that i've mentioned before the other thing that really interests me is how we engage with communities as a whole when we want to do something really transformative so suburban rail loop in victoria not not far away from where where you're probably sitting michelle what a brilliant opportunity to to make something transformational happen but we have that advantage of then looking globally to say well where are we going to pick some lessons up and I really like what's happening in California and some of that sort of broader Bay Area outside San Francisco but also places like San Jose where they're taking the view that actually that transport scheme is just one factor in really transforming communities and um, supporting what the community wants and where it lives is just part of the DNA of the transport approach, which I, I just think is really brilliant. We've seen lots of glimmers of hope across the globe as a whole, actually, that active transport can be um, much more centrally part of the conversation that we can have as one of our modes as well. Um, and I love the the kind of intersection there between the well-being of individuals and the way our cities can breathe and be spaces we want to be in and then you know what I would probably being me refer to as the backbone uh, of the public transport city uh, system which is clearly the railway and how those different parts can come together so another thing I think I always watch for in sort of seeing case studies and, and reflecting on what could work well in our jurisdictions in Australia and New Zealand is about that integrated whole how can we bring the multiple modes together and have a wonderful interchange which is just a natural flow I love going to Shin Yokohama and places like that where you just see the the brilliance in the thinking even just down to the timing of which train comes to which platform so I can cross and get my bus and it's all part of the natural flow uh, I, I think those are those are brilliant opportunities for us as we as we enter the next phase of transport in Australia and New Zealand yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think we're in a really exciting time, actually. I wanted to pick up on something that you mentioned before, right, which was around collaboration. And, and certainly, you know, we know that that's becoming increasingly important. I know that when you worked at Transport for New South Wales, that you actually signed agreements with authorities from different uh, Australian states and territories, right, around kind of collaborating and sharing of information. And I know you're passionate about this topic. I know you're a big fan of the work we do at UITP in facilitating that global collaboration. Um, but I wanted to ask you, you know, what does our sector have to gain from it and how can we improve collaboration across the industry? Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely spot on there. I'm a, I'm a big fan of collaboration. And, and it was a great experience when I was at Transport for New South Wales to uh, engage with um, fantastic partners uh, in Victoria and in Queensland. And then I, uh, it kind of evolved towards WA as well um, in bringing uh, like-minded people together across rolling stock projects in that instance. Um, and actually, it was a good example of where we can see real advantage, I think, for, for the industry as a whole. So um, it's a way of sharing lessons, um, but in a live way so that you can actually genuinely have conversations with people in in two ways I think one of them is frankly using them as critical friends so having a, a trusted group of people who have shared um, uh, ambitions that you're trying to optimize public transport but able to kind of give you that kind of critique of what you're doing and I think 
one of the things in industry that we can continue to get better at and I really like the way that UITP often curates those panels which allows for those healthy debates is is being reasonably open to challenge you know harking back to my Paralympics experience but also you know one of the joys of working with really talented engineers at Oricon is the fact that we're willing to challenge ourselves and I do think if you can have a fairly robust conversation and you can bring people together from different disciplines in terms of professions but also perhaps a group of people who are mixed and represent the community as a whole you can then challenge yourselves to make sure that the outcome you're trying to achieve is going to be met through whatever you're doing in my space obviously it's usually engineering design and so one of the benefits to me is bringing in um the challenge as early as you can but also keeping it going you know we had some great outcomes on some of the ferries i delivered in in new south wales and the project team led some innovation in that space in relation to safety and i don't think that would have happened if we had not had a tone where it was very much part of our expected norm to have a reasonably robust conversation about whether we were going to achieve what we should be achieving i think the other thing is um, we are quite commonly doing something reasonably similar um, but we're sometimes doing them in very, very different ways across jurisdictions in Australia and indeed um, when we're looking at New Zealand. And there's nothing wrong with that at all. But there's sometimes opportunities to kind of pick up or um, kind of just reflect back lessons you're picking up from others um, early enough that you're going to save yourself time, money and effort. Uh, and that is pretty critical now more than ever in the current economic conditions, of course, but also just in the way we're getting stuff done. If we can get maximum benefit for the way we're approaching stuff that's that's a definite benefit i'm also a really big fan of, of working across sectors um i sat um as a non-executive director on a board um for a defense project when i led major rail projects for the uk and similarly i had a colleague from defense sitting on one of my project boards and you just get so much insight there's a great deal of similarity to some of what we're trying to do um, and having that insight being brought in from a separate sector means that you both take something back um, to kind of enhance what you're up to. So, so for me, there's, there's a whole range of benefits. I think the one other thing I've really reflected on working in infrastructure as long as I have is you are often in international teams. Um, and there's an, an aspect of collaboration, which actually is that very deliberate consciousness that we're working across cultural differences sometimes and being mindful and embracing it and actually enjoying it. Um, I'll never forget the, the faces of some of the engineers we brought over to have a look at some of our rolling stock plans in the UK and they were international uh, and I don't think they'd ever seen a group of British people coming home quite late on a Friday evening and, and quite what they get up to on a train they get quite boisterous and we just needed to communicate what people experienced in their transport systems from a different cultural perspective for them to think aha <laughs> that's why you want the outcome. So, so I think there's also that richness in, in just really understanding each other when we're trying to do stuff. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's a lot you talked about there, actually, and really interesting thinking through some of the benefits of collaboration that I don't think are necessarily top of mind, right? Because I think often it's just seen as part of the process that you go through. But what I have found really interesting and I'm sure you have as well, right, with the kind of arrival of COVID-19 and what that's meaning for our networks and transport authorities and operators and, and those that are advising them is, you know, rethinking, you know, what that public transport and broader integrated transport network looks like and what are maybe some of the shifting needs. And I think what's been really interesting that I've seen is that there's a lot of collaboration now that's going beyond the transport sector, 
right? Mm. You know, the conversations mm. around, well, if we want to spread the peak load, we have to work with employers, you know, to look at people's schedules. And I know that this is a topic that you are really passionate about. And I thought, let's have a conversation about demand management. You know, what work have mm-hmm. you done in that space? And particularly, you know, I think you've put it this way before, right? Understanding why the peak is the peak. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, ultimately, we design for the peak of the peak a lot of the time. But um, one of the great things about things like the Olympics, so when I was involved in the, the kind of broader Olympics planning for travel demand management, I, I came in pretty late to the game, if you'll excuse the pun. Um, but some brilliant work had been done in terms of, yes, definitely getting into that conversation with um, employers and colleagues who are representative of what people are actually doing on our transport systems. Um, so getting an understanding of why they were moving around at the times of days they were but also what the levers were to allow them not to if they didn't want to and that that almost brings us back to that that conversation we were having earlier about flexibility and how it can matter for people we may not want to be traveling at those peak times and actually if you begin to unlock that it not only benefits kind of smoothing the flows of capacity need on our transport networks but it also means that people are basically traveling when they want to there's a bit of an equity thing i think in that conversation as well in terms of really getting into whom in our communities need the use of public transport in their lives to make sure they have access to really essential things health education welfare um, versus those who might have the flexibility and want to use it differently and i love the way that you know smart ticketing intelligent use of um, transport data intelligent use of information to the passenger also is part of that freeing up of the way people move around. I really liked when I came into Oricon um, some of the work that was done into uh, a report we did, which is moving people and goods. Um, and it was about imagining 2035 and what people might want to do. The great part of that is when you go out and really ask people these questions and start from the get-go and reach out beyond transport and think of it as an enabler, i.e. who should I be talking to? Because ultimately, they're all my clients um you get some really good insights as to why people are doing what they're doing and actually that they might not want to do it quite the way they are and if you can free up that conversation you can really start to shift the paradigm uh, which i'm a big fan of yeah absolutely you know i actually thought it was really interesting i wanted to ask you you know continuing on this kind of topic right around you know, some of those initiatives in the future. I saw on LinkedIn that you wrote an article where you were talking about in response to COVID-19 that we need to reshape rather than reset public transport. And I thought that that was super important, actually, like that concept around thinking, you know, reshaping that value proposition and particularly thinking around, well, essentially, we can't just go back to the way things were before, right? Because things have changed. And Mm there's actually an opportunity to make things better. And I think as well to be kind of positive and proactive and optimistic, you know, in that kind of mindset around, you know, what transport could look like now. So I just thought maybe you might have some thoughts, right, around, you know, actions or thinking that, you know, operators, authorities, and even public transport users, you know, could be looking at right now, you know, that kind of culmination of the different aspects of what's going on there um, and what that means going forward. Yeah, but I really, I really like the creativity that's come from some of it. Actually, as you say, I think there might be some glimmers to be um, looking at in terms of glimmers of light and, and optimism there. And uh, to your point, I think what I really enjoy about working um, with with the great engineers that we've got at Oricon is they're really passionate about legacy. They really think about what their 
leaving for their future communities, future selves, future colleagues, and so on. Um, and so one of the things that struck me about the moment we're in is, is kind of removing some of those constraints we just traditionally accept. We've talked about peak of the peak. Why are we having to deal with the peak of the peak just being a static thing we expect to be happening we've talked a little bit about flexibility and an active transport as being more central things to just an expectation that we might collectively use uh, and bring to the fore i'm really interested by um, whether we can think hard about energy and transport in this space you know we've seen some brilliant maps uh, really kind of lifting the lid on the fact that the air quality is looking pretty great uh, and kind of reflecting back into that well what does that mean for the future and should we be really focusing slightly differently on how we could achieve that sort of comparable um, beneficial impact for our cities um, by shifting the gear um, faster uh, and in a more focused way on the way that we're using energy in the transport context um, you know and I think sustainability is one of those things where it's going to be front of mind for a lot of the people who are the users of our networks the other thing is I've really um, enjoyed getting a lot more educated about the role that freight plays in um, in transport networks since I've been in Australia and New Zealand I think the the way in which the networks are set up in Britain is very different in terms of passenger dominance versus freight and so on but there's a real opportunity to have that conversation about bringing together the thought that freight is very much part of the logistics of our cities and, and who, who's making that work and how could it be made to work better as we plan to live our lives slightly differently and as we respond. Um, and I think, you know, I mentioned the Moving People and Goods report. What I've got a real appetite and passion for is getting into the data of that and seeing where people are moving around and what are they doing and how are they responding? And how could we then flex ourselves as transport providers to start to meet the real preferences that they've got? It's a, it, it is an opportunity, I think, of us to demonstrate that we can be flexible. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Becky, there's such great content there that you've talked about and so much to think about, really. I mean, I've got to say your, you know, your grasp of what's going on in transport is actually really inspiring, right? Lots of amazing experiences you've had and initiatives you've worked on. And uh, I'd like to kind of circle back now, I guess, to where we kind of started um, in this episode where, you know, we were talking a bit about your career. So, you know, I wanted to ask you, what do you think has been the key to your success professionally? Um, I think it goes back to genuinely enjoying a lot of what I do. <laughs> uh, yeah. And I think that does tend to make me uh, pretty passionate and I want to go the extra mile. I'm pretty invested, but you do, you know, you have to watch the shadow side of that. I've mentioned sponsorship and meeting some brilliant colleagues along the way. I was delighted to share the list with Michelle Dix uh, for these podcasts because she is someone I took huge inspiration from when I was um, starting out in some of my projects career. Uh, so thank you, Michelle, formally. Um, yeah, so, she know, actually mentioned, she sent an email and said, oh, I'm excited you? to listen to the <laughs> podcast. So yeah, very exciting. Uh, uh, yeah, well, I was, I was thrilled because, you know, you, you do meet those people and they, uh, they really inspire you. Um, I think if I had a piece of advice to give myself from back in those days is, don't hesitate to ask. I meet a lot of pretty senior people in our industry these days, and it's a real pleasure to see how engaged they are in, in ensuring that we're trying to, to sort of pave the way to make our industry more diverse, to make it a, a more inclusive place to be. You know, I've got a young daughter, as I've said, and I'd love her to be in, enjoying as much as I do some of the things that I do in our industry. And paving that um, uh, paving that way to to others is is part of what a lot of senior people are, are wanting to do so you know don't hesitate reach out ask the question 
don't feel that you can't approach people and and seek their advice and seek their guidance I think there's most of us in a senior level would want to do that yeah absolutely I was just thinking about your daughter right she might be the great granddaughter of rail Uh, (laughs) (laughs) great great (laughs) yeah yeah she's already obsessed with trains (laughs) Well, I've added some ferries into the mix, you know, I'm trying to broaden out my modes. And she, and I have to say, she does love the trams because there is something very beautiful and distinctive about that sound. (laughs) Oh, there is. Although you're in Sydney, right? So, you know, ferries are iconic, you know. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. But we're lucky we have the multiple modes uh, in New South Wales. Um, And indeed, I think there's, there's, there's few other pleasures in life as to getting the, the ferry over to Waiheke in Auckland. So we've got plenty of modes to test out in this region. Oh, absolutely. Well, for anyone who's coming to visit for the UITP Global Public Transport Summit that's in Melbourne next year, um, you can come and see all the modes in action as uh, you travel around Australia and New Zealand. Um, Becky, I wanted to ask you just a quick question because I'm really interested in this one around careers. The last one is that, um, you know, do you have a five or 10 year plan or have you just kind of gone along with the opportunities as they've come? <laughs> I that one always causes me to think I should develop a more professional answer. I, I have to be completely frank, I don't have a five to ten year plan, but I did recognise and then kind of act on the fact that I could see um professional services and finance wasn't where my passion was. And I and I guess I did permit myself to to follow up on that and to move into major projects as a consequence because I really enjoy seeing what I've been part of come to life and actually um, benefit people in communities. I, I just get a real kick out of that. It's brilliant. Um, so I would say one thing for me was recognizing that shift in myself and thinking, how can I pursue that? Um, there's also some fantastic sponsorship available um, with a capital S in terms of, you know, there's some, some brilliant things I've benefited from in terms of academic scholarships. Uh, I had the great good fortune to go to Stanford last year as part of a scholarship scheme. And I think being willing to put your hand up and put your hand out for those, those sorts of opportunities then just really enhances your ability to, to follow where you want to go, but do it in a structured way. So no, I don't have a plan, um, but I've been, super fortunate I think so far in working with brilliant people and being inspired by them and also kind of pushing myself a little bit to to be prepared to step outside my comfort zone. Yeah I love that and um, you know I think that's really important right I guess being able to to step up and 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 go for those opportunities when you see them. Um, thanks so much for sharing, Becky. Uh, it's been an amazing conversation, and you know I feel like we've gone full circle, right? Diversity, future of transport, major projects, London. Um, you know your career. I've gone through all my questions. Is there anything that you haven't covered that you'd like to make a comment on? I think it's been a brilliant conversation, and I'm really grateful, Michelle, that you invited me. It's a great pleasure to work with people like yourself in our industry, and I see more and more of them. Perhaps the thought I'd leave us with is it's that dynamic that gives me real hope that we can continue to kind of push the dial a little bit and 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 increase the inclusion levels in infrastructure. You know, I'm a big fan of something that I believe happened in the Obama administration, and that was, I think, termed amplification, which is the more... Um, people in a room that have something in common and can kind of make sure everyone's voice is heard the better uh, and I think we should continue to do that so it's been a brilliant conversation uh, I love the way you've you've kind of put together the podcast and it was 
delight to be part of it. Oh, thanks so much, Becky. Um, I was absolutely wrapped when you said yes. And I'm sure our <laughs> listeners, yeah, I'm sure our listeners um, have really enjoyed this podcast episode. So thanks so much for your time. No problem at all. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much. And to those of you listening, if you've enjoyed this episode, please check out some more. This is our sixth episode and we'll be releasing a new one every week for this series. I'm Michelle Batsis. Thanks for joining me for Women Who Move Nations. Thank you to everyone for listening to this week's episode of Women Who Move Nations. This series is co-produced by Cassandra Kadelka and Lara Rudd with copywriting by Sophia Dickinson. Please join us each week as we raise the voices of women in the public transport and mobility sector. I'm Michelle Batsis. Keep safe and keep our nations moving.